Welcome to 10,000 Roads to Financial Independence, the podcast where we interview real people with real stories of taking charge of their time and reaching financial independence faster. And now, your host, Elisa Zen. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of 10,000 Roads to Financial Independence. Today, I have Dan Breeze, the Dan Breeze. Dan Breeze is a ex- uh, X Game Goat Medalist. Um, I actually, me and my husband actually watches his videos sometimes. Um, and uh, he is a principal at Granite Tower Equity Group, then oversees asset management acquisition and investor relations. Um, Granite Tower has acquired apartment buildings across country in markets such as DFW, North Texas, St. Cloud, um, Minnesota, New Mexico, and the Birmingham, Alabama, to name a few. Dan currently resides in the states of Washington and has been professional snowboard in the past, as we mentioned before. And he is married and have two young boys. Yeah, two young boys. Correct. And, yeah, uh, correct. Yeah. Awesome. And so then, then story really struck me because it's such a unconventional journey. Um, you know, coming from pro sports and uh, into investment world, um, and the entrepreneur himself as well. So then, very welcome uh, to our show today. Thank you. And thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. That's awesome. So um, then we always ask our guests this question to start with. Um, can you tell us who, when you think back, um, you know, really give you a lot of influence to become the entrepreneur who you are today, um, coming from your childhood or certain <clears throat> incidents that, like shaped you in such an unconventional, you know, entrepreneur? Yeah, I would say that's definitely Robert Kiyosaki, um, reading his books, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then the volume of books he's created over the years um, really spoke to me, you know, and he talked about a C student, I could relate to that. I wasn't the most uh, sharp uh, high schooler. Um, I was very focused on my snowboarding, and I had other goals in mind. So when he started talking about how he was a C student and still found ways to build businesses, just resonated with me. And I went down that avenue and read every book I could of his and, and really just got excited about, you know, something after my snowboarding career to to head into. That's really amazing. And uh, so you started snowboarding, how old were you? To, to be a yeah. medalist, you know, X game is like in some sense in the snowboard world is a high, held a higher prestige than like Olympics, right? Because um, it's no big deal if you win an Olympics medal, but it's a huge deal if you won the X game. Yeah. 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 I started when I was 11 or 12 ish. My cousin from uh, back in Minnesota, his friend from California got a snowboard and brought it into town. And it was new, a really new sport at the time back then. So we got into it and just fell in love with it. And one thing led to another. And after, you know, 10 years of aggressively pursuing the sport, getting paid, never getting paid, I mean, funding everything and and just putting everything on the line, I finally got to a point where I got to a level where I started to win some contests. And after being on some of these brands for four, five, six years, and then winning, they started to give me more help and start to put me in other spots and in opportunities to, you know, really excel and turn the career into something bigger, which, uh, which ended up being a professional snowboarding career, which was fantastic dream come yeah, true that's awesome that's awesome and uh so so transition in there um when did you read robert kiyosaki's like what's your first encounter with robert kiyosaki's materials 
Yeah, I'd say midway through my career as a snowboarder, I could see the writing on the wall. Some of these athletes who I knew and were my heroes, who I got to know when I moved to Salt Lake City. I grew up in Minnesota, and after high school, I transitioned to Salt Lake City to commit to this career. And I ended up meeting a lot of these guys who were my heroes and became friends with them. But they were, you know, five, eight, ten years older than me, and they started to transition out of their careers. And I could see some of these guys who were like legends of the sport who were struggling financially. Mm-hmm. And you know, they made a ton of cash, but when the cash stopped, they had a bunch of liabilities and it crumbled. So it scared me. In all honesty, I was like, "Well, I can't be that." guy if i'm lucky enough to have a career like these guys have had and done as well as they have and they're struggling financially i'm gonna have to learn something else so i started just reading books financial education books i started out with some pretty poor books about iras and 401ks and in that kind of investing and i did some stuff with the financial advisor and i, I you know in my opinion wasn't really a financial advisor at all. It was more of a salesman putting me into, you know, something that was going to make them money while my money didn't really do much. Um, And then I came across, like I was saying, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, Ken McElroy, Tom Wheelwright, and all of these guys had these books and they just, it was very intriguing. And I was also in a position where I was doing well financially as a snowboarder and I was looking for a way to pay less in tax. I knew there was no possible way that people who were wealthy, you know, were paying 50 to 60% of their income away. And so I was trying to figure that out as well. What What is it that my CPA didn't know and didn't have the knowledge to advise me on and what 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 CPAs did have the right knowledge. So that's where I started working with ProVision, which is Tom Wheelwright's company at the time. And I went down to Arizona, flew in, interviewed them, really liked what they had to say, could tell they were way more fitted for the entrepreneur. Uh, And so I started working with those guys 10 years ago, and I'm still with them at today and really kind of a life changing moment back then already just getting onto a new path. They advised and buying businesses, multifamily specifically. And, you know, there was a lot more, I think that I didn't realize uh, that was going to be needed to learn to do it successfully. But at the time I didn't know what I didn't know. So I just went head down and started buying some smaller stuff on the side on my own midway through my career. So I'd say probably 10 years ago now, bought my first little duplex and then a nineplex and then a 24 unit deal and just started scaling up. That's awesome. And so what is your experience um, on your first deal? Tell us a little bit about your first deal. Um, and then you did do a couple of small boxes, like to kind of ask you about the difference yeah. between the small to the big stuff. Um, but what was your first deal? Yeah. Like? yeah, first deal was a nine unit property up in Chehalis, Washington. Um, you know, I, I wanted to get doors. I wanted the depreciation from the cost seg study. Um, and it was honestly, it was, uh, I bought in a market that was going up and you couldn't really lose at the time. I mean, it was just coming out of the great recession and everyone was going to do well. And, you know, basically rents were going up. So I bought the property with some basic underwriting knowledge. Um, I, I did hire a third party management company. I hadn't started working with a mentor to get, you know, more detailed information on, on really experienced investors. Um, but I ended up getting pretty lucky, but at a good time, you know, I had a good management team in there and I think the property I bought it for like 175 and sold it for 360 in like a three or four year period. Nice. Again, it was a smaller deal first time getting into it, but yeah, overall, I mean, it was, it was really an eye opening moment to see cash flow coming in every month. 
Um, there definitely were more problems and more headaches. And I was surprised at that, but it was a 1912 build. The property was very, very old. So the plumbing in the foundation had, you know, the, the foundation issues were fine. We got through it, but you know, there was some shifting and there was some cracking and I didn't go very deep on that. I just went with my, at the time, the guy who inspected it, what his advice was, was he thought it was pretty stable. So we just went forward with it, but it was all my money. And it was, you know, at the time it wasn't as, it didn't feel like it was that big of a risk and ended up doing pretty well, but overall way different than what we're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and then when did that transition happen from, you know, small properties? So you did a couple of them. I'm guessing they're successful. Um, and uh, w when did you kind of decide the thought process come in to say, hey, I'm actually going to do the larger apartment buildings? Yeah, I think it was, you know, we, so I bought this nine unit property, then I had some funds left over and I bought a duplex that year and both of those did, were doing really, really well. And then at that time, my now business partner and really great friend, Mike Roeder was buying single family homes in Minnesota and he and his wife came out to our house one summer in Washington to visit with their family. And I was saying, Hey, we should buy a deal together. So Mike and I bought a deal with one of their investor, a 28 unit deal. And we liked the cash flow and could see the opportunity with the depreciation. So we ended up actually going down to Dallas, Fort Worth, kind of looking for somebody who was more experienced to help us really understand the game at a higher level, how to raise is capital, you know, correctly, how to underwrite deals conservatively, how to really just, you know, be a professional investor versus, versus someone who reads a bunch of books and tries to figure it out as we go. So we went down and we hired Brad Summerock, a gentleman out of DFW, and we've been with them since 2017. And now it's, you know, much larger deals and kind of scaled up mentally on what we, what was possible and didn't have to buy with only our own money. You know, I mean, it, even if you're doing well, you're going to run out of, out, of, out of cash pretty quick in this business because, you know, a regular apartment, you know, you might put down a million to 10 million bucks, depending on the size of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, especially now the deal size you guys are doing. Now, what is it like? Uh, what is your first large apartment? Like, tell us a little bit more about the transitioning to that, the lesson that you're learning, like the difference between that large property versus the smaller ones. Yeah, we went actually to a 45 unit deal and it wasn't a super large step. After that, we went to an 86 unit deal. And then after that one, we went to, I, I believe it was 250 or, or somewhere around there. It was a bigger deal by then. But, you know, the biggest transition I think was just that you can have a property management company fully take care of everything. And, you know, these smaller deals, they would take care of things, but they just didn't operate quite as high of a level there was more involved involved work for us to do but I, you know at the end of the day really it, it, it seems to me like whether it's a duplex or whether it's 400 unit deal if you can buy in a path of progress underwrite the deal conservatively and put a great team in place you're likely to do very very well that's been our experience thus far it's all about getting in the right property at the right time in the right market which that's the obviously the challenging part yeah and then Tell us a little bit about more because it mentioned that, that you have um, had how many states are you in, you know, in terms of investment property? In like, I lost count. <laughs> it's a five or six. Yeah, we we own four deals in Minnesota. Um, we're actually selling three of those right now. We own a deal in Wisconsin. We own uh, two in Texas or DFW market. One in New Mexico. 
Mexico and then one in Alabama. So we're a little bit, we're a little bit all over the place in that sense, but the teams we have in place are pretty deep as far as we've been with all of our management companies and all those locations for several years. So, you know, for us, it's, it's a hundred percent about who's our management and what market we're in. And if we have the confidence and we understand what, you know, our management company expects of us and they know what we expect of them in a, in a strong market, we can build it out and still be successful even if we are spread out a little bit. Yeah. And then, so how, walk us through the process because for me um you know we're in like three markets and then like it's already like my hair is on fire uh <laughs> and then because every market you go into you got to do a lot of work to get the deal flows and etc so I'm just try to wrap our brain if you can share with our audience on um how do you how do you actually get the lead gen deal flow from like all these mm -hmm. multiple, like uh, essentially like your super sauce over there. Yep. It's, it sounds like more than it is, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul market in Wisconsin. That's obviously our one market. Mike grew up there. I'm from there. So we were doing a lot of due diligence back there day one. So that market was kind of self-explanatory with DFW. We're connected with a, a, a group, some rock group, and we've met all the brokers over the last five years and just spent a lot of time in Dallas. And then the one-offs, you know, New Mexico that came from actually a DFW broker that we bought from and our management company company that were used 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 usually managing the property they also managed out in New Mexico so they did that deal as well and then the one in Alabama actually came as a co-general partner a couple other deal sponsors that Mike and I have a lot of respect for Mike Hardage and Tom Lafferty and in a J they asked if we wanted to be a part of that deal to help them kind of get it across the finish line it was a 36 million dollar deal and like 16 million dollar raise so when we came on we were more really more to help get it across the finish line and now we're on asset management calls with them weekly but we didn't create that relationship. So the, the Alabama and the New Mexico relationships really came from not doing much work, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Because it's like following the people instead of uh, just the marketing market and per se. Um, could could yep. you give us some highlight on like sounds like if one person have to kind of really hone in on one set of the skills or one important metrics, what would you say? Um, that contribute to your success, like explosive success inside of the investment world, what would that one or two elements be um, if someone was kind of looking into uh, starting their career that way? Yeah, I, I would say the thing that had helped my snowboarding career and now the real estate career is getting around others who already are doing what you wanna do or at, a, or at a higher level and start to associate with them as much as you possibly can. You know, with my snowboarding career, I wasn't able to associate with a lot of the big name pros, but I was able to buy their videos and watch their videos on repeat over and over and over again. And you, you know, mentally start to train um, as you watch things over and over again, and you can learn stuff without, you know, physically being next to these people. Um, and then with real estate, I would say same exact thing, getting around others who are a much higher level than you and associate with them as much as possible. And, you know, working with a mentor who had a lot of experience and coaches who have a lot of experience um, really helped that as well. And then just seeing others that, you know, personally buying deals and getting it done makes you believe. I think that's a big <clears throat> challenge for anyone to move up is just the belief that you can do it. You know, without that belief, it's hard to 
really take the the steps that are needed. And if you can start to increase your ability to believe in something, you'll start to take way more action and, and really get after it. That's that's amazing coming from a gold medalist. <laughs> I just have the <laughs> emphasis on that. I think um, a lot of focus is probably also put in place as well. I think that's very well said. Um, so then coming to that question, I need to kind of have a follow up question on there too, is now you guys own probably over a thousand units now all over the place, right? Maybe a thousand five hundred. Um, and uh, so what is kind of the next goal? Uh, and then what are some folks that you look up to that you think is going to take you to the next level? Yeah, yeah, that's, you're right. We're at about 1350 units, I think. And then with closing this one here on Monday, we're closing 264 units. We'll be getting right close to 1500 units. But, um, you know, for the next five or 10 years, I would love to just continue on the path we're finally on. You know, it took so long to get to this level of building the real relationships, having the knowledge, building your reputation, and actually being able to create wealth for ourselves and our investors, that um, I, I feel like there's this stage, you know, in my snowboarding career and in my real estate career where it just takes time and it just takes consistent, focused effort year after year after year. So, you know, the goal is, is four to six assets a year, you know, depending on the size of them, depending on our team, depending on how our deals are performing, and just really try to focus on that pace. You know, um, I think that it, you can sometimes maybe grow too quick and all of a sudden some of your deals start to not perform or you're growing too slow and you're stuck in the mud. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly what those paces are. They may change from month to month, but just kind of monitor that, but just build consistently. And um, that's, that's kind of the five-year projected plan right now is just do what we're doing. It's been a lot of fun. We're uh, gaining some really solid traction and, you know, Mike, Mike and I get along really great as business partners. And I think we just need to be careful who we partner with. You know, once you start to get some momentum and, and, and you start to head in a positive direction, I think a lot of people want to jump on the bandwagon and some qualify, some don't. And that's on Mike and I to figure out who, who does and, and who doesn't, but just more of the same, you know, and, and there was a second part to your question. I can't remember what it was though. You remember? Me either. So that's, okay. <laughs> um, and then, so that was really interesting because what I also want to ask is, what are some of the systems process you're putting in place now you're at the level where you potentially have to hire out building a team because uh you know when you have only a few properties um, you can work with the pms on these and then as you kind of scale up like what what kind of helps you lay out your system and process um, in terms of uh, being able to handle all these different types of units in all over kind of like all over the town essentially yeah, if we can get information from others who are further along than us and we ask them that that's helpful. But if we're, you know, a lot of it sometimes is sometimes is just figured out as we go. You know, I think as you continue on anything, you start to realize where you're wasting time and what really matters. You know, one thing that I think Mike and I are trying to be way more careful on is punching less deals and figuring out some very specific criteria uh, and checking the five or six major boxes before you dig in on a deal. You know, what's your one mile median income like? What year was it built? Um, what's the path of progress for the jobs and what's happened in the last five years in this exact location? Does your management company love the location and believe in the location? You know, and then is it, when you do a quick look at the comps, is there actually a way to move the needle? And before you start digging in deep on the deal, 
you know, verify some of those things and just check off some of the major boxes. And before you, you know, do a deep punch at all or, and spend, you know, an hour, even four hours or 10 hours on a deal, get, get kind of the point where you're like, okay, we know this broker, we, our management company wants to manage here. The price is somewhat in the ballpark. Um, you know, okay. And it hits all those other pieces of criteria. Let's, let's do a quick punch on it. And then, you know, from there, I mean, there's so much other stuff, but that's just one example of, of how we've kind of, you know, in, in the beginning, we probably looked at 40 deals really deep. And now we're trying to look at 10, 10 or less to buy, you know, as a deep look, um, we might look at 60 quickly or a hundred quickly, but not, not spend a ton of time on deals that just aren't going to meet what we're trying to do in the first place. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So I think that pre-selection is really important and prioritization. What does your typical day look like? I mean, in order to condition as a, um, you know, gold medalist, I know I always come back to it. Um, there's a certain condition of mindset that you're doing. Um, and then can you kind of share with our listener on like, what's your routine like and what are the things that kind of keeps you going? Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that I kind of got in the habit of as a snowboarder, because you don't really have anyone harping at you, telling you what you need to do, either you're motivated to do it, or you're just going to get left behind because other, you know, kids or guys, gals are, are more motivated. So I think one thing is just getting up and, and at a decent time every morning, whether it's four to 6am somewhere in there, get up and, and get going. Um, you know, and maybe you, maybe you work late at night. I'm not saying that's the way that's just how I've been doing it. Um, I get up a little bit earlier and then I like to spend the first hour of my day trying to stay away from any emails and phones. Um, you know, maybe do a, a little bit of goal setting. I like Grant Cardone talking about how he's written down every goal he's wanted for the last, you know, 10 years. And, you know, you spend 10 minutes in the morning writing, writing down your five or six main goals, just kind of gets you your, 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 your ASR. Is that what it's called? Your no RSA reticular activating system. Your that that's uh what's his name? Um, the big tough guy who talks, um, one of one of uh, Tony Robbins guys, but anyway, getting your art, your, your reticular activating system on your goals. So you, so, you know, this is the way you're going and um, you know, and then read a little bit, maybe, you know, put some positive mental programming into your brain. Um, I, I really love a lot of, you know, it kind of sounds hokey, but you know, like a lot of these inspirational books, Zig Ziglar, I love Dale Carnegie, um, Napoleon Hill. I can read those, those guys' books on repeat. Um, Thinking Girl Rich, great book, but read a little bit and then get some exercise, you know, at least try. I've I actually been a little bit more slack than ever in my life with COVID hitting once you couldn't go to the gym without a mask on. I just, I've just been doing it at my house and, um, but try to get some good exercise and then get into the day, you know, um, and, and, and try to make sure you're prioritizing what really needs to get done versus, um, you know, what's wasting time. And I, I think that's a constant battle for everybody. What's, what's important. So. Yeah, definitely. And how do you decide? I mean, what what is it? You know, I listen to all these books, and they always talk about, hey, prioritization is the most important thing. And it's the secret for everybody who is successful. But how do you kind of decide? Um, can you share some like metrics of how you decide one task is actually really important versus the other one? Because we always falling yeah. into the traps of, you know, just kind of sometimes working on the task that maybe not so important high side. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's more of a feeling, you know, um, and I, it's hard to say what one's the right one. But for me, you know, it depends what's going on at the time of our business. If we're in a capital raise, I'm never looking at a future deal right now. You know, I, the feeling right now is focus 100% of our time on raising capital. When we've just closed a deal, you know, 100% is on asset management. How's the asset performing? What what didn't we see? What How, how, how are we reflecting compared to our underwriting? You know, how's our team? How are, how is, how's the new on-site performing. Um, you know, so it depends if it's, you know, we, maybe we just close the deal and I'm going to take a week to kind of just chill. I might take that as my time to, okay, re, re, recategorize, re, rejuvenate, check your goals, check yourself. How's the family doing? Because sometimes when you're raising capital on these deals and you're going out for these deals, you're obsessively focused on getting the job done. And all of a sudden you're not spending the time with your kids. I got two little boys and I care deeply about hanging out with them and being around at the age they're at eight and two years old. So, um, but I think it just really on a day-to-day basis is a feeling, you know, of, of what's, what's important. And, and I've tried to always live that way throughout my entire life. What, what matters most, you know, to your heart, to your gut, to your, to your emotional being and try to set that your, your work day up based off of what will make you your heart content. I know it sounds a little hokey, but it's kind of the truth. It's how you feel. So, and Ed Milet is the guy I was thinking about. Ed, Ed Milet talks about the RAS, his reticular activating system. Anyway, that's, that's where your goals in the morning just kind of set the tone of, of this is where you're going. And it's nice when you're in the morning, you set your goals, you kind of, it kind of shows you where, what you're going to be doing during the day. Okay. My goal is to close this deal. Where are we at in that deal? you know, and, and put them in order. And it just kind of lets you take every single day, just one step at a time. And it, it takes time, right? I mean, nothing happens overnight. I think that's probably another thing that a lot of the youth or, you know, the, the, the generation Z, the younger generations maybe have a challenge with is everything's so instant these days on and anything in life that you're going to put time in, it's just not instant. It takes dedication over a long period of time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know, I kind of got off on the tangent there. <laughs> well, I love it. I mean, we all have a mind. That's our, our best asset. I think the condition of it, it should be taking a priority for sure. Um, and I mm-hmm. think obviously that distinguishes you from excellent, like really excellent, the best in the world uh, to, um, you know, average or just, just getting by. Um, yeah, so love love what you just share over there. Um you mentioned you have two little boys, so we're going to kind of wrap it up over here. Um, was, what are you doing to help them um, to become financially literate and set them up for success for the future? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that, you know, if there was one thing that my parents did, they put a little some good character in into me as a, as a young kid and didn't do too much for me. You know, they basically said, if you want something, we're here to, in supporting of it, but you're going to have to make it happen. And I think that that was, you know, tough at the time when I was a kid, but very motivating. And it allowed me to just know that if it was going to be done, it was, it was up to me. And with my son, Zealand, he's eight now, and he's really into dirt biking. And, you know, so, so we, we dirt bike together now. And I see the challenges he's going through of trying to overcome some of the fears he has. And, and man, I can relate because I went through that stuff. And, you know, who knows how far he goes with it. But it's, it's just nice to be there with him and to 
give them some thoughts of what I did and, and things that I saw or, or ways that I behaved to overcome some of those fears. Because I mean, at the end of the day, courage is, it really is kind of a muscle. Either you, you push through and figure it out, or you back down and become a little bit softer and weaker, which, you know, that's, that's a challenge. Everyone's got to figure out what pace they want to be at. So no judgment pass there, but, and then we do some classes too. I've been reading Zig Ziglar's book, See at the Top. Uh, and Zig Ziglar, I love, I love everything he talks about. And, you know, they're basic, basic concepts that are so good for the kids to hear. And they're such great character building techniques. And so we go through uh, some stuff about self-confidence together. And, um, you know, there's this self-confidence formula that Zig Ziglar shares in the book. And I just said, Hey Z, we should memorize this together and, and see if it, what it does for you as you, as you grow. And so we've been doing that and it's been, it's been great. He loves it too. That's the cool part is he actually, he really enjoys it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, those are some things. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then what do you do with your two-year-old? That's kind of like a little too early. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got a little KTM like Stasic dirt bike. So when we're out there riding, he's got it's an electric dirt bike and it's just it's got a battery on it and it goes like 10, 15 miles an hour and he's out there with us. I mean, he's he's a little bit young yet. I I, I don't do the best when kids are under four, I'll admit. Um, but, uh, you know, he's he's there with us and wants to be around and I'm sure he'll be getting getting after it here shortly. That's awesome. How do you actually achieve um, kind of like a work life balance? Because a lot of, of us take a lot of sacrifice, but we truly enjoy doing the entrepreneurship. So, um, so how do we kind of balance? Do you have any tips to kind of balance between the family? Yeah, spouse, you know, yep. yeah, that's, that's probably been the most challenging piece for me, because I'm so passionate about, you know, with snowboarding, you're so obsessively passionate about it. And you have to travel, which is part of the reason my snowboarding career really wound down was I, I traveling away from my boys. It just, it wasn't what it used to be. And then now, you know, we don't travel nearly as much for work, but there is still travel involved. And I think you just have to set a schedule and shut it off. You know, I, at four 30, there's something inside where, where I'm just like, I have to go and hang out with my boys. So, you know, I can get up at whatever time in the morning, but at four 30, no matter what happens, I'm done. I don't care what the email is. I don't care what's going on. And everyone gets to know that, you know, Dan's gone at 4.30, phone stays in the office and, and try to check out. And so I've been trying to do that as every day, you know, every, every work day I have. And from 4.30 to 7.30 or 8, I'm with my kids, um, you know, just doing whatever we do. I don't, we don't, sometimes we're just walking around the land and just doing dumb stuff. I mean, it's just it's whatever it is. So that's kind of it for me though, you know, focus really hard in the morning until 4.30 and shut it off and then come back and, and I can work at night after the kids are in bed if I need to do some catch up or really busy. But I mean, if I can't get it done in a 10 hour period, um, I probably should be delegating and hiring a new team member. Yeah, that's a great rule. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for your time today. And how do people find you? Like if people want to reach out, ask you more questions and, uh, you know, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, best way is going to just be uh, granitetowersequitygroup.com. There's a contact us uh, button on our website, granitetowersequitygroup.com. Reach out. Love to help you guys. If you have any questions along the way, you want to talk about real estate anytime. That's Feel awesome. free. And we'll put that link down below in the show notes over here. Thank you so much, Dan. It's an honor to have you over here. We can say we have celebrities in our show today. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you for listening to 10,000 Roads to Financial Independence. This can be you. What if today was the day you started the countdown clock to your financial independence? Join many others like you at www.com easyfiuniversity.com to get started.